Uh, good evening. It's good to be with you tonight. Good to have you all here. Thanks for worshiping so enthusiastically. Loved it Sunday, too. Come back with that spirit of worship again. Revelation chapter 8 tonight. Revelation chapter 8. Before we begin tonight, though, I want to make a quick advertisement for next Wednesday's message out of Revelation 9. I, I know, we're not even into 8, and I'm already talking about 9, but I'm doing it for this reason. For those of you that may be joining us live stream, for those of you who may be here, there may be somebody after you hear this that you may even want to invite to be here next week with you or to ask to come with you. This is going to be a bold claim but I believe it with all my heart. If one can accept the message we're going to be talking about next week, Revelation 9, and apply it to your life every day, every fear in your life will begin to evaporate and you will become more and more fearless. There is no way any of us can truly absorb, accept, and apply what we're going to talk about next week and not come to a place where we're either going to be even more afraid or we're going to become a fearless person. It's going to go one of two ways because it is maybe, maybe next week's chapter, the most terrifying chapter in all the Bible. But it's given to us to teach us not to be afraid. Tonight, as we talked about from the very beginning of this study, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we are primarily here to learn more about our God. And in this chapter tonight, we're going to see three things about our God. Our God is awesome, okay? Our God is awesome. He's also accessible and available to us. And then finally, he's ascendant, simply meaning he's supreme, he's superior, he's sovereign, he's the ascendant God. He's awesome, he's available and accessible, and he is ascendant. And within that scope of talking about God, I want us to open up our Bible tonight and begin looking at chapter 8 of the book of Revelation. And the very first verse says, And when the Lamb who was opening these seven seals... Let's not again forget who's the one who's opening the seals in which judgment is falling upon the earth. It is the lamb. Very strange, isn't it? You don't usually associate a lamb with judgment, right? But remember what John 5:22 says. The Father judges no one, but has appointed and assigned all judgment to the Son. It is the Son of God who will be the judge. And John the Baptist one day, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, removes the sin of the world. And the reason he has the right to judge is because he also paid the price so that we would never have to be judged. And everyone who is judged willfully rejects the love of God poured out in the personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And they settle for something else over that in their life. And they then are judged for their own sins 
rather than accepting Jesus Christ to be the one who was judged for their sin. The lamb is the one opening the seventh seal, but notice something very remarkable here. And I think it reminds us of the solemnity of the moment. Let's not forget that through our study of Revelation, we've talked about the fact that the, the book of Revelation could also be a study of worship. Because almost in every chapter, you encounter the worship of God in heaven. And we've talked about how loud and how boisterous and how enthusiastic and, and the angels are constantly surrounding the throne of God saying, holy, 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 and the 24 elders and, and the living creatures are saying worthy and, and praise and honor and glory. I mean, it's just constant praising and constant singing and constant instrumental worship, even unlike anything we've ever heard and all these different sounds and everything. And yet at this point, notice what it says. There is silence in heaven for a half an hour. Literally a hush falls over heaven. Can you imagine the contrast from the beginning of God creating the angels and heaven. Heaven has been a place of sound, of noise, of worship up until this point. We know of no other time in the history of the universe that God created that there's ever been silence in heaven. So that half hour is going to seem like days. Nobody's talking, nobody's moving, nobody's singing. Nobody's doing everything. There is silence there. And it reminds us of the awesomeness of our God and what's about to take place on the earth. Keep your finger in the book of Revelation and go with me to a couple different passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. I want to begin in the book of Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, if that helps you to find it in your Bible. Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. And I'm just going to begin at verse 1 of chapter 5. Be careful what you do when you go to the temple of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer a sacrifice like fools, for they do not realize that they are doing wrong. Do not be rash with your mouth or hasty in your heart to bring up a matter before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Then go to the book of Habakkuk. Some of you may again say, where in the world is the book of Habakkuk? Well, the easiest way to find Habakkuk is to go to the very end of the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Then turn left a little bit more and you'll be in Zechariah. And then go past Zephaniah and you'll come to Habakkuk. All right. Habakkuk chapter 2. And look at verse 20. But the Lord is in his majestic palace. The whole earth is speechless in his presence. Silence. Zechariah then, all the way to the next to last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 
chapter 2 and verse 13. Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 13. Be silent in the Lord's presence, all people everywhere, for he is being moved to action in his holy dwelling place. There is a time to worship. There's a time to sing. There's a time to praise. There's a time to shout. There's a time to be loud. And then there's a time to be silent. And right now in the book of Revelation, as the trumpet are about to sound, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. It reminds us again about the awesomeness of our God and about what is going to take place. Then notice back in Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, then I saw these seven angels. We don't know exactly who they are. Who stand before God. Think about that. They are standing before this awesome God. How are they standing ready, able, and willing? Because they were made fit. They were made able to stand before the Lord. Think about it. You and I one day, mere human beings, are going to be able to stand before our awesome God, the God we've sung about, the majesty of God, the splendor of God, the glory of God. You and I are made to stand in his presence through the blood of Jesus Christ and through the righteousness we have in him. And God wants us now on earth, unlike these angels who stand ready, able, and willing in heaven to do the bidding of God, God wants us on earth to have the same attitude of, God, I'm ready, I'm able through you, and I'm willing. What do you need me to do? Making ourselves available. Notice, in fact, in verse 3, another angel holding a golden censer came and was stationed at an altar. Stationed means that was his place of service. He was at his post. He was at his place. God has a place even in heaven for each angel. They have a place of service. It's where they're stationed. It's where they're supposed to be. It's their post. And God has something like that for each of us. We're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. We're learning about serving the Lord, and God has a part for each of us to play. And the fact that we can even serve such an awesome, great, majestic God is amazing. It again teaches us something about our God, that as awesome as he is, he makes a way for his angels and for those of us who trusted Christ as our Savior, not only to stand before him, but to serve him throughout our lives on earth and throughout eternity in heaven. And notice in verse 2 then, these seven angels were given seven trumpets. Trumpets are significant in the Bible. They primarily are used in the Bible by God for three things. They are a call to God's people to celebrate. They are a call of God's people to battle. Think of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. They are also given, though, in the Bible to God's people as a warning sign or as a warning sound. And again, I'd like us to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to get, we're going to get used to going to the Old Testament. 
Keep your finger there and go back to the book of Ezekiel and the book of Joel. The book of Ezekiel first, chapter 33. Ezekiel's just right before Daniel. So if you find Daniel, it's a little bit easier to find Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33, 3. This is a passage talking about the watchman that God has assigned Ezekiel, the prophet, to be one of his watchmen, if you will, who watches out over the people of God and warns them. And notice in verse 3 of Ezekiel 33, he says he sees the sword coming against the land. So what does he do? He blows the trumpet and warns the people. Then if you go over to the book of Joel, the Joel is sort of towards the beginning of what we call the minor prophet section. So after Daniel, you have Hosea, and then right after Hosea, the first minor prophet, you have Joel. And in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, notice what the prophet Joel records. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm signal on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land shake with fear, for the day of the Lord is about to come. Indeed, it is near. A warning. Trumpets. Call God's people to celebrate. Call God's people to battle. And call God's people as a warning sign that God is about to move. He's about to do something significant. He's about to intervene in a dramatic way. And these angels are being called before God and given these seven trumpets. And then if you go back to uh, Revelation chapter 8, you will see in verse 6 that the seven angels are holding these trumpets and they're prepared to blow them. They're ready. All God has to say is, do it. And they are ready, willing, and able to follow through with this assignment that God has given them. What an awesome God is working here. He is moving. He is getting ready to judge the world like never before. He, he is He is taking action from his majestic palace in heaven. If you go back then to Revelation, I want you to notice this. And I'm going to begin in verse 3. Another angel holding a golden censer came and was stationed at the altar. A large amount of incense was given to him to offer up, notice, with the prayers of all the saints. Prayer is so important to God that he literally has an altar set up there to collect the prayers, if you will, of God's people. They ascend to him like incense. They are like an offering that you and I give to the Lord when we pray. Think of it this way, too. Prayer is very much a sacrifice. Just as worship is a sacrifice, prayer is is very much a sacrifice. It is why there is an altar set up there. And God encourages his people to pray. And part of what I want you to see tonight is that the moving and action of God in the book of Revelation is in response to the prayers of God's people. 
Remember, we already saw how the tribulation saints were coming out of the tribulation saying to God, how long? And even today, you and I are taught in Scripture to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we are praying that prayer, if we are desiring the Lord to move, to work, to come, to set things right, to vindicate himself and his people and all of that, then these are part of the prayers that are on that all that God is responding to when he's going to tell those angels to blow their trumpets. All I can say out of this is just keep praying. Don't be discouraged in your prayer life. Keep persisting. Keep persevering. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, Men and women ought always to pray and not to faint, to give up, to lose heart, to get discouraged. Pray, pray, pray. Keep communing and communicating with God. God hears and responds to the prayers of his people. We see this over and over again, and this is especially significant here in this passage in Revelation. Literally, there is an altar there in heaven collecting the prayers of the saints. God takes our prayers and what we say to him and how we cry out to him very seriously. By the way, the word prayer here in verse 3 literally means to face God. There's much about prayer and worship that are very similar. When you and I worship, we are to, in a sense, take our attention off of everything else and rivet our attention on God. And prayer is the same thing. It's literally I'm turning away from everything and everyone else, and I am facing God. And the other part of this word is it's an exchange with God. That's what God wants prayer to be, that many times it's transformational to those that are praying. God may not change our circumstances, but when you and I spend time in his presence in prayer, he changes the prayer, <laughs> if you know what I mean. We leave his presence after praying different than when we came in. You and I can't read the book of Psalms, especially, where we don't see this dynamic, where a psalm may start out with some kind of complaint. God, why this and why that? And why are you allowing the, the, the wicked to prosper and, and, and the good seems to suffer? And, God, and then they begin to get into the presence of God and have this exchange with God. And by the end, their attitude and their perspective changes because that's what prayer is. We even sung a song about this sort of dynamic even Sunday, trading our sorrows where even in prayer we can come with burdens and cares and all of that, and we lay them at the feet of, of God. We, we cast our care upon him, and we leave a little bit lighter because we've released that to God. That's that exchange that takes place. You see, that's what prayer is. It's not just facing God. It's doing business with God. It's God participating with his people and partnering with us as we pray. That's why prayer, dynamic prayer, needs to be a two-way thing. It's not just us talking to God and communicating with him, but then being silent and listening for him to commune to our hearts and, and to talk, to speak to us, you see. It, it's, it's always that way. It's that way with worship. It's that way with his word. It's that way in prayer. It's God engaging with his people. Notice in verse 3, 
These prayers are found on the golden altar that is before the throne. This is so cool. The altar was always part of the meeting place where God met with his true worshipers. Okay? There, there was always a place where God says, this is where I want to meet with you, but it was also a place of sacrifice. Okay? It was both and. That should continue even today, even though we're not living in the Old Testament age. I mean, think about our church. Our church should not only be a meeting place where God is meeting with his people, it should be a place of what? Sacrifice. Where we come to offer sacrifice to God, the sacrifice of worship, the sacrifice of service, if you will. We cannot forget what David said when God told him, I, I will not permit you to build my house, but I will permit you to start collecting the essentials for my house that you can pass on to your son Solomon. And as David was getting ready to buy that threshing floor, the guy that he was buying it from said, I'll give it to you. And David said, no, no, no. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Sacrifice. The meeting place of God should also be a place of sacrifice. Think about that. As you and I meet with God, a place of sacrifice, a place of sacrifice. And prayer is considered by God sacrificial. Don't ever forget that. God looks at it that way. That's why there's an altar in heaven to collect the prayers. You and I are taking time and saying we're making it a priority that we need to talk to God about this. And there's so many other people we could talk to, and not that we shouldn't do that at times either. But, but God, this is important to me, and, and, and this is on my heart, and I want to talk to my God about this. He takes that very seriously. So notice in verse 4, the smoke coming from the incense along with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. It was a sweet-smelling sacrifice or offering to God. Every time you and I pray, it is something that pleases the Lord and is a sweet-smelling sacrifice and offering. Then the angel took the censer, verse 5, filled it with fire from the altar in heaven and threw it on the earth. In the first six verses of this chapter, everything is taking place in heaven. But beginning in verse 7, we see now the earth. And what we need to realize is there's always a connection between heaven and earth. Whether we realize it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, there's always a connection. I thought the other day, you know, that one of the catchwords today that people use a lot, especially when they're talking about uh, science fiction or, or even like, um, I don't know, some of those crazy things that, that people get caught up in today, but they'll use the word portal, right? There's a portal to another world out there, right? And it opens up and, you know, aliens come in and go out or... Bigfoot comes in and goes out and, you know, all these things come in and out of these portals and stuff. But when you think about it, there's a measure of truth in that from a biblical perspective. In the fact that there always was, from God's perspective, a portal, if you will, between heaven and earth. Think back to Jacob. He saw what? Angels ascending and descending on this ladder. It, it, it's a portal. It, it, it's something between heaven and earth. You and I live as God's people literally between two worlds. We live all, at all times between heaven and earth. And what takes place in heaven 
is always going to be affecting us whether we realize it or not. Think about the book of Job. I'm sorry, I'm conscious of that right now because I'm studying ahead for our series in the fall. But you think about what happened to Job. It all was because of a conversation that took place in another place where Satan had a conversation with God and it affected Job. And by the way, God never told him about that. Never told him why. Come back in the fall and we'll tell you what that was all about. But heaven always affects earth. Always. And what takes place on earth always affects heaven. That's why Jesus said, there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner that repents. Heaven gets excited when someone down here gets saved. Heaven and earth always have a connection, and you see that in the book of Revelation. And there's a storm coming. So when they began to throw this fire from the altar onto the earth, there was crashes of thunder, roaring, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake, a shaking. Keep your finger in Revelation chapter 8 and go with me now to the book of Hebrews. A shaking. God promised this. Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning at verse 25. The author of Hebrews says, Take care not to refuse the one who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on the earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who warns from heaven, heaven and earth, speaking from heaven. Then his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will once more not only shake the earth, but heaven too. Now this phrase once more indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is of created temporal things, so that what is unshaken may remain. God wants to show the earth dwellers what you are living for is material. It is physical. It's temporal. It will not last my shaking. What's really of value and worth is what will survive the shaking. So that's why he says in verse 28, so since we, God's people, are receiving an unshakable kingdom, the things that really matter cannot be shaken, let us give thanks. Let us be people of worship and praise. Let us offer worship pleasing to God and devotion and all, for our God indeed is a devouring fire, consuming everything that is contrary to his nature. You see, the shaking is coming. It's coming. I was sharing today when Job lost everything, it was a dress rehearsal for death. It was God reminding Job, you, you realize, Job, naked you come in, as Job said, and naked you go out. The only thing we have when we die is what we have become in this life. That's all we have. Don't ever forget that. You don't take all your stuff with you when you die. All that we, in a sense, take with us when we die is what we have become in this life. There's a shaking coming, and only that which is of God is going to survive the shaking. So let's get to the rest. We'll, honestly, we'll go through this rather quickly because we've seen how accessible and available God is. He's always accessible and available to his people because he's always encouraging his people to come to him in prayer. He's an awesome God. 
who not only has been worshipped since creation, but is so awesome that he's the only one that can do the things that needs done in order to purge the earth completely of evil and to set up a holy, righteous kingdom on earth and that one day a kingdom that will never end. He's the only one. He's also an ascendant God. He's sovereign. He's totally in control of all that he's created. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Creation shows the glory of God, and he's in charge of his creation. So beginning with the first angel, verse 7, we see that God is sovereign over the soil. And yeah, you know I like alliteration, so all these are going to start with S. And I'm just going to read these because I really can't comment too much on these. They're just pretty intense. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there was hail and fire mixed with blood. And it was thrown at the earth so that a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. By the way, you will note as we go down through here that many of these trumpet judgments have a parallel to the plagues that God gave to Egypt during the time of Pharaoh when he was drawing his people out. The second angel blew his trumpet. Here we see that God is not only sovereign over the soil, verse 7, he's sovereign over the sea, verses 8 and 9. And the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain of burning fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the creatures living in the sea died. A third of the ships were completely destroyed. You know how many ships exist on the earth today? Thousands, okay? If a third of those ships just were suddenly destroyed, can you imagine even the effect upon the economy and commerce and all of that? Verse 10, God is sovereign over the springs. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a huge star burning like a torch fell from the sky. It landed on a third of the rivers, having an effect upon the rivers and the springs of water. Now, the name of the star is Wormwood, literally meaning bitter. It was symbolic of judgment and death, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from these waters because they were poisoned. And finally, in verse 12, God is sovereign over the skies. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, and there was no light for a third of the day, and for a third of the night likewise." God is sovereign. It's his earth. It's his world. It's his universe. He is the Lord of hosts. He has everything at his disposal, from the greatest, biggest planet or star that he ever created down to the tiniest molecule or atom. It's all God's, and it can all be used by God. He's the ascendant God, supreme, superior, sovereign to everything else other than anything else. Verse 13, then I looked and heard an eagle flying directly overhead, proclaiming with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining sounds of the trumpets of the three angels who are about to blow them. A woe was simply an interjection of either grief or denunciation. And in this context, it probably is both. God is denouncing the earth dwellers who have lived for nothing but earthly things, and he is saying, grief is coming to you because you have rejected the way of your salvation. By the way, this is very important, and I'll close with this. 
After the words, whoa, 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 to those who live, you could also translate this, who live for the earth. Now, now I'm not, I don't mean that in an environmental sense. I mean that in their values are earthly things. Their, their focus is on temporal, physical things of the earth, stuff, if you will, mammon, material things. They live for those things. And they have settled down and made the earth what they think is their permanent residence. Very different, right, from you and I, who realize we are supposed to be sojourners, pilgrims that are just passing through. We're not to feel settled down here at any time in our life. We're to be settled in God, but we are not to be settled on the earth because our citizenship, according to Philippians 3.20, is in heaven. That's where our home truly is. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be what? At home with the Lord. That's our home. The reason these folks are going to feel the effects of this is they made the choice to reject God and his free offer of salvation in Jesus Christ and all the blessings that came with it. And they said, God, thank you, but no thank you. We're more about earth stuff. And they're going to find out that all that stuff that they live for, one of the reasons they're going to be so grief-stricken is because they poured out their whole life and realized now that all they lived for, all that they were focused on their whole life is going to be taken from them in a few seconds. It's going to be gone, and it doesn't matter. And they have nothing to show for their life because that's what they invested all of their time, energy, and effort, and money into was earthly things rather than investing in eternal things. You see... A great exchange, if you will, is coming. A great reversal is coming. The values that drive the world are going to be turned on their head. And one day, those who may have very, very little of what the earth can give will be filled with the riches of eternal glory. And those who had all that the world could give them, will have nothing for all of eternity. Something to consider. Something to pray about, right? So as we wrap this up tonight, here's what I want to leave us all with tonight. We have seen in this passage of Scripture how precious our prayers are to God. He has set up an altar in heaven to collect our prayers, if you will. So I want to ask you tonight, as you leave this place, as you go home tonight, as you lay your head on the bed tonight, as you close your day in some kind of prayer, hopefully tonight, what will you be talking to God about? What's on your heart? What's something you need to converse with God about? And as you do that, be encouraged. God is participating with you. He's not like many of us who are in conversation with somebody and they know and, and you can tell they're not really listening. They're not really with me. 
They've got their mind on something else. When you and I pray to God, God's full attention is on us. And he is taking in not only every word, but don't forget what the Bible says that the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit even takes those emotions, those groanings, and that, that maybe even pain and stuff that you and I can't even articulate and express. And he even takes that to God in prayer. And he, he gives us not only our words to God, but all of our emotions to our Father as well. Keep praying, folks. We ought always to pray and never give up. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that we can end our time in your house by coming to you in prayer. And we again want to acknowledge that the only way we can stand in your presence, the only way we can bring these requests into your presence is because we stand in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We come through his sacrifice and through his way that he made for us through his shed blood. And God, as we come into your presence tonight, would you hear our prayers? Would you accept our prayers? And God, may we have a renewed commitment to pray, to prayer, knowing that you do hear us, that you do respond, that you do listen, that you do engage with us. And that, Lord, maybe we won't get the answer that we want, but we'll get an answer. And maybe we won't get the answer from you that we want in the time that we want it, but it'll come in your perfect time. But God, may we never come to the conclusion as we're praying to you that you don't hear our prayers, that you don't care about our prayers, because your prayers, or our prayers, excuse me, are very precious to you, God. And you have an altar in heaven to prove it. God, would you take us all home tonight, refreshed and energized through your spirit by being here in your house tonight? And may you bring us back on Sunday where we can come in a spirit of worship, ready to worship you again and engage with one another in your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.